What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast could be sponsored by you, the listener, by heading on over to patreon.com slash Chase Thomas writer. There you can become a patron and support the show as I continue to grow, keep the website up to date, um, keep you informed with everything that I'm doing right now, and uh, eventually get a facelift for the website. Um, Every little bit helps, helps keep the lights on, all that good stuff. So again, just head on over to patreon.com slash Chase Thomas writer and uh, become a patron today. Um, also, check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com. It's uh, my site where you can learn a little about me, uh, get a, a direct link to every single episode, um, all that good stuff. You can also read all of my work. I'm basically writing there every day. Um, the schedule that I have right now for uh, my writing on the site is on Sundays. I'm doing an ATL sports column. Um, kind of traditional in that sense, depending on what's going on in Atlanta sports that week. On Mondays, I am doing a 30 things on the NBA um, that I'm excited about because the NBA is coming back soon. Uh, Tuesdays, I'm doing a Monday Night Raw recap and review. Uh, Wednesday, I am doing a SmackDown Live uh, review. On Thursdays, I am doing a Throwback Thursday, so I'll watch a game because I like watching old highlights. I like watching like 1998 Minnesota Vikings versus like the Dallas Cowboys on Thanksgiving, things like that, where Randy Moss went off. Um, so I'm going back, watching old games, uh, and I will be writing about them as if they are happened right now and all that good stuff. On Fridays, I'm doing a nobody ass mailbag where I uh, just I have a lot of questions and a lot of thoughts on sports, and I can turn them into questions, and uh, I'm going to write about them in a nobody asked mailbag. So you can find that on Fridays. On Saturdays, it's, um, it's just a Saturday morning thought, so things I, w- I thought about during the week. I just want to write about and uh, mixed in with all of that, uh, just other kinds of articles like when I wrote about Bruno Caboclo and why it's interesting that the Houston Rockets are taking a chance on it more. Jimmy Butler and his rumored flirtation with uh, the Lakers and why um, he might be a better fit for uh, Kawhi Leonard instead of LeBron James and uh, all that good stuff. So uh, other articles um, spread out throughout the week all that good stuff, but you can find all of that by going to chasethomaspodcast.com. Uh, don't forget, there's a lot of ways you can listen. Spotify is a popular one now, so you can find the Chase Thomas Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, um, Google Play, uh, everything else that you could possibly think of, uh, CastBox, um, just uh, all kinds of great stuff. So Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, of course, uh, but yeah, just search Chase Thomas Podcast. You can find it. And if you are an Apple Podcast listener, uh, it'd be great if you could leave the show a reading and a review. Um, it's just, it's important uh, with the way iTunes works. So it'll help other people find the show, help the show continue to grow. Um, so that'd be great. So if you, uh, if you are an uh, Apple Podcast listener, it would be great if you could leave a rating and a review uh, for the show. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Chase double underscore Thomas. And uh, like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. 
All right, Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. My guest, first up tonight, Matt Brown of SB Nation. Matt, good evening. How are you? Hey, I'm. I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm good. You sounded tired there. Very. <laughs> are you just over the Ohio State stuff? Is that what that is? I. I am. I'm extremely over it. I'm I'm over, you know, just about every, you know, there's, there's always like one gigantic scandal every off season. And I feel like while, you know, this one has been exceptionally stupid. Um, and, and I mean that very, very expansively. So I'm, I'm, I'm over that. I'm over all the football tertiary stuff and, and I'm excited for actual games to be happening now this weekend. You can kind of pivot to that. Yeah. Games are happening. And, uh, it's good for football because they've had a both the NFL and college. They've had a bad off season. I think both leagues are very excited that uh, games are actually going to start happening, and we can turn our attention to that because that's the fun part. Yeah, I mean, like we we, we got to be honest. Like anytime you're a fan of of, of any sports league, honestly, you kind of have to compartmentalize some things, right? Like there's the person who owns your favorite team is probably a gross and problematic person on a couple of ways, and you know I, I've written a, a book mm-hmm. that touched on this and. There's no, there's no getting around it. Like there's a lot of the college football enterprise that is corrupt and is broken and is gross. And we, as as writers, we do have to acknowledge that. But at the same time, there's a lot that's delightfully stupid and exciting and fun. And you know, every person has to make up their mind. You know, what what's an acceptable amount of either one. Um, I know I'm 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 a little bit tired. I'm not, I'm not going into this season quite as excited as I normally am. But maybe by week three, I'll have my mind changed. But the weird part is, and I like that you threw out week three there. Um, that's a big week for Ohio State. But uh, I, I I think it's just so weird, especially for an Ohio State fan. I feel bad for them because now that Urban's still there and he's going to, I mean, they'll probably go 3-0 and without him. I mean, the TCU game's going to be interesting, I guess. But um, I'm not really concerned about them against Rutgers and everything else. So they'll probably be 3-0. and This is a team that Bill Connolly, I think, has as his number one S&P Plus projection for this yep. year. They are loaded with blue chippers on both sides of the ball. They have a quarterback that's not JT Barrett, which is a huge win this year for Ohio State fans and just people who want to watch Ohio State have a functioning offense again that's at least exciting and interesting and all that good stuff. Um, it's just weird because, like, do you root? Like, obviously, we saw some of the Ohio State fans that are going to back him in this university regardless, but then the other ones who are like, we really want a good product, but like, this is weird. Like, what do we do here? Like, I don't even know what you tell those people that um, you've put some of your fan base in this position where it's like, I, I like they have to feel gross if Urban Meyer wins a national title this year because that's a very strong possibility. Like, Alabama going back to back is hard and it's rare. And like, the next team up it's ohio state and uh, it's gonna be wild to see unfold and i am still not at a place where i have one clear thought on all of this it's just it's gonna be weird that's the very that's the only thing i'm certain of is this is gonna be a very weird year for ohio state fans and college football fans and just the sport in general yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't want to characterize Ohio State fans as, as the victim here per se. I'm like, there's a, there's a list of wronged parties throughout this entire right, enterprise. Right, yeah. yeah, I would not put them in in the top two or three. You're you're right. I mean, like it, it is it is um, certainly it, it would make sense for anybody to feel conflicted. I feel conflicted on some level, and it's and you know how each person decides to to figure that out is up to them. I'm not, I'm not really gonna you know tell anybody how how to fan. 
it's the, the same situation that I think Michigan State fans or Maryland fans or Penn State fans are, are feeling right now. Maryland fans probably uh, a little bit differently, I, I imagine. And I know that there was there was some national conversation about is this some kind of Big Ten epidemic or anything. But like, yeah, this happened in New Mexico a couple of months ago. Dude, at Cal died. I think last year, like we're we're gonna roll the scandal die, and somebody else is something very stupid and potentially you know dangerous and harmful is gonna happen at some other school within the next year, year and a half, because that's how the sport works, and we we just kind of have to to process it and 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 move on. I don't know. Do you think the Ohio State Buckeyes are going undefeated this year? Like where no. are you at with this team? Do you, no, okay. No, I'm, well, I, I I wouldn't bet on anybody going undefeated because. It's it's, okay. it's it's really hard to do that. And, you know, you know, if you want to look at this schematically, right, I think it's fair to say Ohio State has one of the three most talented rosters in college football, along with Alabama and mm-hmm. Clemson. I think yep. I like Ohio State's the totality of their offense a little bit better than Clemson. I like Clemson's defensive line a little bit more. I think I like I, I like the, the raw talent of Ohio State's secondary a little bit more than Alabama's. Their, their, their full roster of Alabama's probably a little bit better. So they definitely have the team to compete for a national title. But when, when you're picking somebody to go undefeated, you, you're, you're putting a lot of faith, I think, in the repeatability um, and, and consistency of you know, 19 to 22-year-old players with limited practice time and a weird football. And I don't feel comfortable doing that at all, especially because I think that there's probably five teams on here that can, on this schedule that can potentially pose problems for Ohio State. Like, I think Michigan's going to be very, very good this year. Um, they have mm-hmm. the best defense within with with the conference. I don't think Penn State. We'll learn a lot this weekend. Yeah, sure, we'll, we'll we'll learn a lot this weekend. I think it's supposed to rain that game. It's going to be a weird, ugly Ooh. slugfest. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't I I don't think Penn State's offense is honestly going to regress that much uh, without without yeah. Barkley. You're going to you have a, a or without a, Joe Moorhead. I mean, they still have Trace McSorley, who's a Heisman contender, yeah. and like, yeah, and they still have top ten talent. I think they're still in Bud Elliott's like thirteen teams that uh, can make a national championship run with their roster. So yeah, yeah they're yeah. there. There, there, you're right. Penn State's recruiting has improved more over the last two years than uh, than just about anybody. It's not like they have a dearth of, yeah. of backfield options, and this might be their best offensive line since the session. So, so yeah, like I, I, I like I think Ohio State has the best chance to win the Big Ten. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think it would be a disappointment if this team does not make a playoff. But there's a dumb loss on here, probably because there's a dumb loss for everybody. Like, I don't think I don't think Alabama will go undefeated. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think Alabama's going undefeated at all. I, I do think that they've lost a lot. They're replacing a lot. Um, coordinator situations that they like. They, there was just a lot of turnover. And I mean, just with the weirdness of their quarterback battle and all that, I mean, they still are Alabama and it's still Nick Saban. But it does seem unlikely that this team's going like 14 and out this year. I, I just, I think there's at least one loss, maybe two um, for them. And I mean, that's a down year for Alabama, maybe, but I still have them in the playoffs and it would still be foolish to. Um, not include them, but I think what's interesting about the Big Ten and the way we were talking about it, because it is a very good division, but it's very top-heavy. Um, you have the Rutgers, the Indianas of the world, and the Purdue's. Who, I mean, Purdue's on the way up, and they're going to have a fun game uh, this week. But uh, I, I do think that it's just fascinating that we're all talking about Wisconsin as a playoff contender. We're talking about Ohio State. We're talking about Michigan. We're talking about Michigan State even. But no one's really talking about Penn State. And I don't really understand that because I do like Penn State more than Wisconsin. I think they have more talent than Wisconsin. And if you put them on a neutral side, I would probably think that they should be favored. But Wisconsin's just, they're a likable group because it's hard to win at Wisconsin. They There's obviously not a bunch of great uh, blue chippers coming out of the state of Wisconsin. So they, they work with what they have. And it's a cool system and all that. And Jim Leonard is a great DC. And Paul Chris deserves a lot more credit as a head coach. But like... 
I think the team that would not surprise me the most of making the playoffs out of the Big Ten this year is Penn State. I think there might be some Ewing theory stuff with Saquon being gone, and I I don't know. I think this is going to be a really good team, and uh, Penn State-Ohio State, I think, is the most intriguing matchup in the Big Ten this year because I'm not sold on Michigan with Shea Patterson yet. I'll believe in Michigan's offense when I see it. Like, it's just until it happens, I'm just kind of out, and then Michigan State, uh, we'll see. Uh, They have a great quarterback situation now. But um, I don't know. I just feel like it's Ohio State and Penn State out of the Big Ten this year. Yeah, I mean, I understand the skepticism about Wisconsin because it does seem like they kind of roll out the same team every single year. This year does seem like it could potentially be different. I mean, I mean, like you're right. Like typically, the, the, the template for being a team that, can, that is in the playoff conversations, you need to recruit at near at or near a blue chip level. And if you're not if you're not at a blue chip level, and by that we mean you're recruiting at least as many five and four star kids over a four year period as you are three or two star kids. There's only about a dozen or so teams that can do that. And if you're not at that level, yep. but you have a transcendent quarterback like uh, you know, two thousand fourteen Baylor and TCU did, like Baker Mayfield and, yeah. and Oklahoma did, and you're at like a forty percent blue chip ratio, you can make the playoffs. You could potentially win a national mm-hmm. title that way. But it's it's rare for a team that doesn't I mean like I wouldn't call Alex Hornibrook a transcendent quarterback. He might not even be one of the best <laughs> no. three in the Big Ten. You know, he's yeah. good for, uh, for a Wisconsin quarterback. And the Badgers mm-hmm. don't recruit anywhere near a blue chip level. I mean, I don't have the chart in front of me, but they might not have 10 four-star guys on their roster. And yet they're returning almost everybody from what was an extremely good offense last year. They have, mm-hmm. you know, depending on how injuries and suspension situations, you know, end up, you know, sifting themselves out they're going to have one of the best groups of wide receivers in the entire conference at least as far as returning production is concerned uh you have a heisman candidate at running back you have a really good offensive line the defense i think you can justify giving them the benefit of the doubt even though they don't return quite as much as last year and last year they were a top 10 team uh and they have a really super easy schedule you know and it's not their fault that like byu is entering their worst stretch in the last 45 years and they've been complete dog crap um, and that was supposed to be kind of like their flagship game, but they're 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 just going to be have they're going to be so, so highly favored to win at least. Wait, is that their games. flagship game on the schedule? I haven't looked at it in a couple yeah. of weeks. I, I didn't even realize that. Oh my god. Okay. Yeah, that is um, uh, that is and, their their, and their and biggest. BYU out of is rolling game. out, and they're rolling out the same quarterback for year seventeen. BYU is? Uh, yeah, so sort of. I mean, Mancom was, was injured most of like the last two years. I mean, if you're not, if you might be thinking of Taysom Hill is with, is with the Saints. But yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's another, it's another older guy. Who does everything, by the way. He's yeah. like a fan favorite. Like him, I think he does like special teams and yep. all this other stuff. Like he's a, he's a jack of all trades. Yeah, I, it looked like he was going to be their backup quarterback, but the Saints just traded for Teddy Bridgewater today. So it looks like he's yeah. going to be mostly on, on special teams. But but yeah, BYU was like a bot, wasn't even a top 100 team last year in S&P+. Plus. Uh, Wisconsin. What's also. going on with Ty Detmer? What's he doing? He, he got this? fired last year. Oh, that's right. Oh my yeah. God. If he, what was that? Only one year? Did he only, get two? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you take a team that's you know historically a top thirty offensive team and take them to yeah. like, the worst offense in history in two years, you're. you're I mean, you know. and didn't they pluck him out of high school? Wasn't yeah. he coaching? He was coaching yeah. at a smaller high school. I think in Austin. Like. He wouldn't have gotten a coordinator job anywhere in FBS and, and probably not even most places at FCS except for the tie to BYU. Oh, but anyway, we, we digress. Like, they play Florida Atlantic, but like BYU is like supposed to be the biggest name in the out-of-conference schedule, and 
uh, Wisconsin's going to be a 20 point favorite in that game. So the, I, I think that they would be an overwhelming favorite to get to Indianapolis. Penn State is probably as good of a team. Like, I, I agree with you. I think there's a lot to like about that offense, even without Moorhead and without Barkley. But it's just, it's just a much tougher slate. And, you know, that's why I think people are, are probably correctly hyping up Wisconsin more. There's not another team with their recruiting profile that I would take anywhere close to as seriously as a playoff candidate. Like, the, the Badgers are definitely an exception. Okay. Uh, this is a two-part question for you. Part one, okay. um, is Dwayne Haskins the real deal in Ohio State? Is he going to be, like, the best quarterback since, like, Troy Smith or Terrell Pryor? And then part two, is there any chance Joe Burrow can make LSU watchable this fall? Um, okay, so those are, those are two different questions. And, you know, I think Dwayne Haskins is going to be a very, very good quarterback for Ohio State. He's, his recruiting profile was, was one of the most prestigious for any quarterback recruit Ohio State's had, you know, outside of, of Miller and Pry- Braxton Miller and Terrell Pryor, like over the last like decade and a half. Uh, and he looked absolutely great in the limited action that we saw. Uh, is he going to be, you know, a, a Heisman guy or, you know, be up in the pantheon of, of, of great Buckeye quarterbacks? Like, I think we can pump the brakes a little bit because he's thrown like 30 passes. Um, and he, I, I, would, I would be a little bit careful to you know, maybe downgrade what Ohio State had a quarterback before. You know, Bar- Barrett's limitations, I think, were very apparent. And they, I, he wasn't super healthy as the year kind of wore, you know, went along and they became even more apparent. Haskins unquestionably has a stronger arm, and this offense is going to be one that can attack defenses downfield in a way that Barrett could. But Barrett was a really good decision maker. He was an elite runner in short yardage. He was a really good leader, and there's a reason that he owns just about every single Big Ten record in terms of total offense. Yeah. And that's just because he played a lot of football games. So we're going to see some moments help where ha- <laughs> yeah, we're going to see some, some moments here where Haskins is going to produce some ridiculous highlight and everyone's just going to go, wow. And the Buckeyes are probably going to win a game just because of Haskins. But he's also an inexperienced guy and has a, a very different skill set than what Barrett has. So whether Ohio State tries to replicate that with Tate Martell in different packages, uh, like don't be surprised if that one dumb loss is because he throws three picks. Like I'm not ready to anoint him yet. He could be there, but he's still a young guy. Um, as for Burrow, I think so, or else <laughs> unless he's looking for another coach this year. Like, I, I think really highly of him too. Uh, he's a guy that drew a lot of comparisons to Alex Smith, and I think not just because of their skin pigment. Um, but yeah. their, their, their games are actually pretty similar. Like, like Burrow is a mobile guy. He's somebody who can mm-hmm. run for 50, 60 yards a game. His place, his, his ball placement's really good. Uh, he was really close to winning the starting job this year at Ohio state. And quite frankly, if he was starting at Ohio state and Haskins was, you know, out for the year with an ACL injury or something, my optimism about that team wouldn't change. Like, I, I think, I think he's that good of a quarterback. It's not a Justin Zwick situation. No, no, it, sh- it shouldn't be a Justin Zwick situation. So, uh, the question here is, is whether LSU has the coaching staff and the rest of the, the talent to, to take advantage of what Burrow can bring. And, you know, Orgeron's talked a little bit about potentially going four and five wide in a couple of situations and really trying to throw the ball a lot more. You know, part of that is because they don't have quite the transcendent running back talent that they've had. So they're either going to change what they're doing and become more watchable, or it's going to be a gigantic tire fire, and we're going to have a new LSU coach, and maybe that changes everything. So either way... I'd, I'd stay tuned to what's going on in Baton Rouge those first couple of weeks. But shout out to him for transferring to a program where he can actually play. Like that's a, it's a cool thing when good quarterbacks and college football transfer to places where they don't have to sit behind another good quarterback. I'm so tired of this. Like Justin Fields going to Georgia bummed me out. 
I'm like, this is maybe the best quarterback outside of Trevor Lawrence, or maybe you think he's better than Trevor Lawrence. We don't know yet. Um, in this class, and he's going to sit behind Fromm for at least a year, it looks like, barring injury. And uh, I'm annoyed. So at least we get Joe Burrow on a team where he can start and play on a team that has a lot of talent, and he has the opportunity to write a ship that's gone off the rails that uh, is it's it's a little astray. And I just want them to make them watchable because uh, LSU, when they're good, it's it's fun. College football, I think, is better when LSU is good. And uh, the Alabama-LSU game might be watchable this year if Joe Burrow is able um, to do some stuff for LSU. But, uh, yeah, more quarterbacks. And I think bringing it back to Wisconsin very briefly, I think I figured out where Jalen Hurts should transfer. Wisconsin, do the Russell Wilson thing. That's the key. They can't get their own quarterback. Like, he can be the horny book replacement. Jalen Hurts, Rose Bowl bound, Wisconsin. You know, that, that that's an avenue the Badgers should probably try to exploit a little bit more for replenishing their skill yeah. position talent. But, they, you know, they've got one of the best quarterbacks in this recruiting class uh, coming in, a guy that Ohio State tried to flip, a guy that a couple other big-name programs tried to oh, flip. okay. Uh, and it's not like the Badgers are looking to throw the ball 40 times a game. You know, yeah. I, I think, there honestly, there is a reason uh, why certain recruits are less comfortable going to Madison. Uh, and that can be mm-hmm. interpreted a bunch of different ways, and that's going to limit the, the, the caliber of guy that they're able to bring in, but they're winning a lot of football games their way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, it works. Um, it My real answer to that is Oregon. I think he, he needs to go the Jeremiah Masoli route. Just go be good at Oregon for a year. Go to a uh, playoff with them one year. He already has the relationship with Mario Cristobal. I think they cross paths at Oregon. I, I mean, at Alabama. Could be wrong, but maybe they didn't. I don't know. But uh, there is some sort of connection there, and I think he would be really fun in Oregon system. But, um, yeah, so I, I give me a team right now that's sitting outside of the playoff picture that you think – in your opinion, based on your offseason research and everything else, that it would not surprise you at all if we're talking about them as a playoff, a, a serious playoff contender uh, this fall. Honestly, as for the playoff, I don't think there is one because um, oh no, you really, you really do have to be. You either we were, we were talking about this, right? Like, there's only 12 teams or so that recruit yeah. at that blue chip level, and I feel pretty comfortable saying we can eliminate some of those on that list. Like UCLA is technically a blue chip team. They might not even yeah. be a bold, bold team this year. I feel comfortable, you know, oh, wow. remo- removing their them. Brutal. Their, their yeah. schedule is brutal. Their, their, their quarterback personnel doesn't really match what they're trying to do. Um, they, the, I, I think their, their, their recruiting rankings were artificially high. They, you know, a lot of guys that they signed either didn't qualify or transferred or otherwise injured. Like their roster does not reflect what was on two four seven the last couple of years. I don't think Texas is close to competing for a playoff bid this year, right? So it's, it's even smaller list. Now, if we're asking who are some teams outside of like that preseason top 12, top 15 conversation that could jump up and be in that level and, and be a very good team or be a New Year's Six caliber team, I do think there's a couple of them. And the one team that I've you know, kind of consistently hyped up this whole offseason, not a team that I think is going to make the playoffs, but a team that I think is going to win a lot of football games is Arizona. Um, okay. So, Tate, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, there's Tate's a huge reason. I think really highly of Kevin Sumlin as somebody who's able to unlock potential with, with quarterbacks. I think he's inheriting mm-hmm. a good team. The hang-up with Arizona was like last year, their defense was abysmal, right? We're, we're talking like bottom 20 in college football bad. But what people mm-hmm. forget is that that was an extremely young unit. It was mostly freshmen and sophomores, and they returned like, like their top seven or eight tacklers from, from that unit. Typically, mm-hmm. just by virtue of, of gaining lots of exposure and experience and, and game footage, you can expect an improvement from horrific to maybe garden variety bad. And if you have a transcendent quarterback 
you have a division that may not be as good as it normally is um, and a really good coach, you can win a lot of football games. So I would be a little surprised if Arizona isn't competing for a Pac-12 South title and in the top 25 uh, as, as we get into later October. I, I, think, I think that should be a very good team. Outside of DJ Durkin, who do you think is the first coach fired in the Power Five? Uh, that, that, that's a good question. The, the, the guy that's, whose firing seems the most certain is Dave Beatty mm-hmm. at Kansas. Right, the, yeah. the Jayhawks just—they just brought in uh, Long, you know, the former athletic director at Arkansas, to be their new athletic director, mm-hmm. presumably to try and convince the world that this is a school that cares about football. Like, you know, but the interesting mm-hmm. thing about Kansas is that they're really on the clock to develop a football program with a pulse, uh, because the media rights deals for the Big Twelve end in a couple of seasons, and if their football program is as it is now, there's a legitimate risk that they not, might not be in a power conference. Um, as, oh. as, 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 as things shift, right? If you're, if you're a Kansas yeah. state, if you're a Kansas, if you're an Iowa state, now is the time to, to build up your program, uh, to, to give you some, some flexibility and, and, some, and, um, some insurance just in case things go, go, go haywire with Texas and Oklahoma. So, and, and to do that, you're, it'd be very easy to terminate a coach that has won like two or three games in, in, in uh, in three years has only, I think only one big 12 victory. And this roster does not look like it's assembled to be able to make a Big 12 run. So the only question here is, do they fire him after they lose to an FCS team or get embarrassed by Rutgers? Uh, do they do it later in the season? You know, there, there's financial considerations here. I would be blown away uh, if, he's, if he's brought back for one season. So you know, other than that, it's all kind of timing about like financials or anything. I, I don't think this is going to be nearly a, a busy of a year with coaching changes than maybe it was like the, the last year or two other than LSU and maybe something very strange happening with Ohio state. I'm not sure a really premium name is going to pop up like the, 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 the Maryland may very well be the second biggest or second best job on the market. And I don't think that's a very good job. Yeah, that's going to be, uh, that's going to be interesting to see what happens with the Maryland situation. That's a, I, I don't think they're going to get a big name to replace Dirk and that's going to be a messy situation. And I don't know, I don't know what hot young coach wants to jump into that situation. Yeah. I mean, like, so on one hand you could say, Hey, Maryland's roster has significant talent. It's recruited at top 30 level. You are literally like a mile away from one of the five best high schools uh, for for high school football in the country in DeMatha there Mm -hmm. in PG County. Um, Okay. And you have talent on your team to be able to, you know, be it being like an S and P plus top 40 program. Like you've got multiple decent quarterbacks. Uh, you have like a former five-star guy in your defensive line. Uh, and you're in a region where you can get really good players. On the other hand, you're at a basketball school. You don't know who your athletic director is going to be. You're a university president. You're not totally sure who that's going to be. And you have to play Ohio state, Michigan, Michigan state and Penn state every single season. Um, so making the bowl game is going to be hard. When you couple that with the fact that Maryland isn't getting full Big Ten uh, you know, network distributions and won't for another year or two, and they've got a lot of university debt to take care of, it's not like you can throw on money like in Michigan or Ohio State. Um, I don't think it's that good of a gig. Like I, I know Maryland gets bandied around about as a, a potential sleeping giant, and that's to say nothing about the fact that their program literally just killed a kid. Uh, but I think at this point, if you've been a sleeping giant for so long, there's a reason you're asleep. Like it's, it's, it's really hard to wake those programs up. And it usually requires either a historically transformative coach or just a veritable shit ton of money. And Maryland isn't likely to get either in the near future. 
Man. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be an interesting situation. I wonder if, um, if Les Miles really wants to get back into coaching. What if Kansas calls him? What if Jeff Long calls Les Miles? How much do you really want to be back, Les? Because he's not getting any other job, it seems like. And if he's not getting any even mid-tier job, that might be the only Power 5 job that would still call him. Would Les Miles take the Kansas job? Uh, he'd be dumb if he would. And Kansas would be dumb to call him. And, and I, that's coming yeah. from somebody who likes Les Miles. But, like, Les Miles is not young. Um, he's not somebody that you, when, you, when you hire him that you're going to expect him to have them for five years. And that's still, I mean, Beanie's actually done a pretty good job of helping to reload Kansas's roster, but it was, it was under, behind such an enormous eight ball um, under Charlie White by, by just going yeah. so hard into JUCOs. And so they're rolling out like 55 scholarship kids because they've done such a bad job recruiting. Like, it's, that, that's, that's a team that's like three years away from being three years away. So I don't think you'd want to yeah. hire a guy like Les Miles or a guy that's kind of on the, in the twilight of his coaching career. You know, maybe, maybe Maryland might. Um, if you think, yeah. hey, with a really good coach, we can get an upset or two and get to win eight games. You need either mm-hmm. a big name that still has a lot of years uh, ahead of him, I mean, like, like a Brett Bielema, who has a ton of experience. The connection. The yeah. connection to the, pro, uh, to, to, the, to the region. You know, knows both the JUCOs and the high schools in that area very well. Give them a six-year deal. Um, you know, that might work. Or you roll the dice with another you know, younger guy and, and, and overpay him and, and be patient. Um, I don't know why we're even debating this. It's going to be Sunny Dykes. <laughs> Is Kansas and Texas now? <laughs> They're going Sunny to try. Dykes. Maybe that's Sunny the plan. Sunny Dykes ain't leaving, ain't leaving that state, man. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Um, I don't know. I was not expecting to talk this much Kansas, but that's what the listeners want. They want our Kansas talk because no one else is talking about Kansas football, but that's what we're doing on this podcast. Yeah, put the NSFW tags on here right before. <laughs> Dangerous amount of Kansas football conversation. There you go. Uh, last thing, and then we'll go. Um, give me your playoff picks, and then your national champion. Um, I know it sucks and boring to be talked like this, but I mean, I feel like Alabama and Clemson are as close to the locks as you're going to get. Give me the Buckeyes yeah. and give me Washington. I like Clemson to win it all. I don't love their offense. I wouldn't be shocked if Trevor Lawrence was playing quarterback by week eight, but their defensive yeah. line is so stacked and their schedule is so manageable. They might not even need to have a quarterback until the end of the season. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing the tier that they're in versus the rest of the ACC. Like, I think Florida State's coming. I, I really do like what they're yeah. doing. I mean, I'm just, I'm still pretty shaky on Will Blackman. Did not like what I saw last year. And if DeAndre Francois is not their quarterback, I'm a little out on them. But I think they'll bounce back. They made a good DC hire. They pulled the guy away from uh, Michigan State that I liked a lot. Um, I don't know. I think Florida State will be back soon. And Miami obviously has the talent to compete, but I just, I'm not sold in their offense. We know Mark Rick's going to lose like North Carolina or something this season. So I'm not yeah. really buying them. Their, their, uh, turnover, their turnover production is highly unlikely to, be, to replicate. Yeah. Like, they do a very good job of forcing turnovers, but they were definitely playing like a team that was on the right side of the Lord a little bit there. And, you know, that could be regressive a little bit. They're not, I don't yeah. think they're ready to be a playoff team next year either. I, I'm with you, though, on Clemson. I'm talking myself more and more into them winning it this year. It's very boring, but I think that's how it works in college football. College football masquerades as a anybody can win any given Saturday, that kind of thing. But it's like, well, no, there's only going to be a handful in the playoff. Like, if you wanted a playoff, well, guess what? A lot of these playoff teams are going to be the same for the next 10 years. A lot of just different matchups of, like, the same 8 to, like, 14 teams is basically yeah. what we're looking at. And, and that's honestly, that's how it's been for, like, 100 years. Um, yeah, it's just, yeah. Essentially, more of those games. Were, if, yeah, if you were really good around World War II, with a handful of exceptions, you're probably really good now. And if you weren't really good and you didn't have someone drop in $100 million 
or have an enormous national demographic shift, you're probably not competing for a national title now. Like, whenever I, I hear people complain about, oh, you so much so recruiting change, or so-and-so is going to ruin competitive balance, none of the little guys won't have a chance. Like, they never had a chance. But, you know, and, and, and I don't say that um, pejoratively, right? I, I enjoy watching Sunbelt college football. I enjoy watching teams, I, I, you know, in the lower end of the Pac-12 or, or you know, teams that don't have a chance at winning a national title. Every game is interesting. Every game brings you schematic intrigue and, and local spectacle and all these fun things. We can appreciate college football divorced from the national title on a week-to-week basis and also be realistic and say, now that there's really 130, there's 130 teams here, but maybe 10% of them have a realistic chance of ever winning. And, and, you know, but also a group of five playoff system would be amazing. I am 100% here for like a North Texas versus like Houston, uh, non-power five national championship game or UCF even like with Milton versus like, I don't know, somebody, whoever Memphis's quarterback is not Riley Ferguson. Um, something like that. I'm, I'm here for some crazy, like, like, you know, those games would be way more fun. Like we would love those games. They'd be fun as a as a bowl game. I'm I'm not really yeah. in favor of, of further, you know, pouring in concrete the division between you know P five to G five with, with a separate playoff. It's especially because I get the the money side here, but I really feel like that's a, a clumsy dividing line between you know quality football and, and not quality football, right? Like what Boise State and what Central Florida and Houston and what BYU you know was able to do before last year, um, like that's clearly superior football to Purdue and Indiana or, or Rutgers. Like, you know, it, it, it would, it would, you know, putting up that kind of concrete barrier uh, and, and, you know, further, you know, separating them. I, I don't, I don't think that's, that's a, a huge value to a, to a fan. Like well, I wish that a lot of the G5 teams had better bowl arrangements. So we could either see, you know, G5 conference champions go against each other or see them get, you know, get better postseason matchups. Cause right now they mostly don't, but I, I'm, I'm not in favor of a playoff. Even that, got, that got floated, I think, after last year's bowl games. Very few conference administrators on the G5 level are either. Mm. All right. Well, that dream, I guess, is not going to become a reality anytime soon for me. But either way, Matt, I appreciate you taking the time tonight. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, no problem. We'll do it again sometime. Yes, for sure. Thanks, man. Yep. All right, on the line right now, 538, Neil Payne. Neil, good evening. How are you? Hey, Jace. How are you? I'm good, man. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you. I've been reading your work for a long time now. Like, I still have like weird me- memories of the basketball reference stuff with you. Oh, and, yeah, uh, yeah. That's way <laughs> back in the day. Right. Um, it's weird how time flies with basketball Twitter and just how long we've all been on Twitter. And I don't think we've been in this bubble for just so many years we don't even realize it anymore just how long it's been in like certain things you'll remember and you're like why do i remember that oh yeah i was on twitter in that time so i saw that and i read that yeah it's been like uh almost a decade i think since uh since i joined twitter and and that was around when that was like the cool thing to do the new the new thing to do join up now we all want to leave (laughs) yeah now we now we can't get off of it fast enough uh, or we have a love-hate relationship with it so yeah i don't think any of us uh, back in 2009 or, or whenever could possibly foreseen the way things would play out in a, in a bunch of different ways, but, but even in terms of uh, social media. When is the lab coming back? 
Uh, you know, the lab is on hi- hiatus right now, but I don't know if you listened to our previous podcast, Hot Takedown. Mm-hmm. Uh, over Kate the year. Fagan, friend of the pod. Kate Fagan, yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're sort of thinking about maybe possibly retooling that down the line. No promises, but um, uh, we're, we're definitely uh, having internal discussions about a uh, another 538 Sports podcast down the line. Okay. Um, love the intro. Maybe that's what I missed the most. Is Well, the combination of you and Kate on the podcast, but also just the great intro. An all-time great oh, podcast yeah. intro. <laughs> I think so, too. I can't take any credit for that. Uh, I, I wish I could remember the name of the, the person that uh, made that for us. But I think it was like a golden era also of, you know, hot take clips that you could mm-hmm. kind of mash together into that. Uh, yeah. we, we always talked about maybe adding, you know, if there were new ones that entered the, the pantheon of great takes that, that we could, you know, sort of, I don't know. One would have to be removed so that another one could be added. So I don't know how that would work, but uh, that that never came to fruition. Maybe sometime uh, in the future. Uh, intros matter, man. Like I was listening to the most recent 538 pol- politics podcast, which I love. Um, they even talked about just how many people were demanding bringing back the old music. And it's there's no yeah. words or anything. It's just like kind of like a Mr. Robot feel. And I'm yeah. right there with them. I, I, it's it's great, but it it feels like it's kind of insane that we all just care about little stuff like that, that it's just some of this, I, I don't know how to explain it, um, but it's great. And I just love that other people are as crazy as I am that really <laughs> do care about podcast intros. Yeah. Podcasts are so personal. I think that you really start to sort of become attached emotionally to aspects of it, like the intro, but also, you know, other things about it too. Yeah. So you've written a lot of stories that um, I want to talk about, two in particular of late that very much uh, <laughs> perked my interest. Um, you wrote about what early NBA predictions can tell us about next season. And I wanted to touch on this first because um, there, I, I am very bullish in the Bucks this year. And you were very familiar with the NBA and your um, numbers and like just kind of the stuff that bared this out that I thought was fascinating was the Raptors have a strong possibility. Like they are number one in the East to make the finals according to your projections, which was my biggest takeaway when I was glancing through everything. Yeah, that was the thing that sort of stood out to me the most too. And obviously that comes with Kawhi Leonard, maybe not even having as great of a projection as people expected. And that uh, I think was also part of the surprise factor for me was, you know, we do the, these uh, Carmelo projections. Uh, I probably can't remember off the top of my head what Carmelo stands for, but it's one of those like, uh, you know, backronyms that that's our projection system for NBA players. And uh, Carmelo sort of was down on Kawhi, at least it looked at previous cases of players who missed basically an entire season. And it was like, you know, a little bit skeptical that they could come back and reclaim, you know, the form that Kawhi had, which was, I think it's been so long, maybe we've forgotten that this guy was an MVP, you know, top of the list or near the top of the list uh, candidate just two seasons ago. Uh, And so when I knew about the player projection before I crunched the numbers for the Raptors as a team, and in fact, before he even joined them, and so when I saw that they, you know, had risen up so much in the East, I was like, wow, this is uh, a little bit surprising to me. And to your point about the Bucks, I feel, ha- haven't people been bullish on the Bucks like each of the past three preseasons? <laughs> I feel like well, I they've been like the Vogue uh, team. Well, I think it's just having a top five player. People just assume well, sure. when you play in the East and you have a top five player, like eventually you're going to break through. Like that's just how the NBA works. Is eventually like if Giannis gets to like number two or number three best player in the league this year, like 
the like they have a really good chance. Like they almost beat the Celtics last year with no coach. Like that that True. almost happened. I mean, they I know the Celtics did not have Kyrie Irving and Gordon Hayward, but like Mike Budenholzer is a really good coach. And I would expect, like, especially adding Ilyasova and Brooke Lopez and moving on from Jabari and the team making more sense and Chris Middleton just being a really good wing. And um, we'll see what happens with Bledsoe, but getting a healthy Malcolm Brogdon back and all that stuff. Like, I just feel like they're a team that's just poised for a huge wins jump this year. And it would not surprise me if they finished, like, number two or number three in the East. And then it's like they have home court and you're in a situation where um, they're well coached and Giannis has a lot more shooters around him and then they're playing the Celtics and they have the best player on the floor. I, I don't know. I think it's uh, conceivable. But then again, I think the Raptors are just a better version of that and I have them in the finals. But it's also like they have a new coach. Um, he has a lot of head coaching experience and all that stuff. But like, um, I'm really high on OG Ananobi and he's probably going to be a really good player next to Kawhi and he figures to get better in year two. You have, they re-signed Fred Van Vliet who was really important for them and the numbers bared that out as well. And they're still a really deep team and um, Danny Green should really help on the defensive side of the ball. And um, I, I just think it's fascinating that they're, it, it does seem like Toronto, the optimism um, there is real, not just with the numbers, but also just getting someone as good as quiet. It's like, it's kind of validating uh, Mas- Masai Ujiri's bet and his gamble of like, uh, it hurt to trade DeMar DeRozan, but I'm going to go ahead and assume that uh, if they did not trade DeRozan for Kawhi, the numbers would not bear out uh what they are right now right yeah no that is definitely safe to say um i can't remember whether we ran sort of a hypothetical projection uh if they had held on to DeRozan. i think we did uh and and it ended up being you know they were sort of not as good as they were last year obviously just because of regression to the mean uh you know the 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 season that they put together a year ago was really kind of lightning in a bottle uh, and also, as we saw in the playoffs, it wasn't really as sustainable as maybe they had hoped uh, against some of the best competition. So I'm with you on that. And I'm, I'm with you on the Bucks too, as being you know, a team that will we'll get to see that team be able to play with a coach that, like you said, has a lot of experience and has a proven track record of making teams sort of play above uh, and punch above their, their weight class in the past. So I'm excited about the East. You know, uh, a lot of people are talking about the Celtics, too. You mentioned them. Uh, And I think our our friends at ESPN, they released their basketball power index, and they have the Celtics as the favorite in the East. And and you can totally see the the reasons why that would be true also. So I think, you know, whenever people say, oh, the NBA, it's gotten so boring, it's gotten so predictable, you know, yeah, in a certain sense with, with the Warriors, you know, dominating as thoroughly as they have. But on the other side, you know, you can pick out these races, especially uh, the Eastern Conference has gotten really exciting in recent years. And I don't think we um, necessarily were saying that maybe like three, four years ago. Yeah, I mean, we're going to like we're going into a year where we don't know who's coming out of the East. We've known who's coming out of the East for basically like seven years now. Yeah. The fact that that's no longer a thing is exciting. And it's not just going to be like some crappy team that comes out of the East. No, I think any of the big four are all good. And the big four meaning Philly boston milwaukee and toronto like any of those four i mean they're not being the warriors so if you look through that prism but that's just a boring thought process to go through of like oh well how do they suck well no one sucks with the warriors like we need to move on from that like that's just right. they're winning and like playing for second i know that's kind of weird to think about but like it is intriguing like in the playoffs are going to be more interesting especially in the east because we just there's a lot more uncertainty because we really don't know how this is going to go we don't know how the quiet health is going to go we don't know if Giannis is going to reach another level. We don't know like a lot of the stuff. We don't know if Joel is going to be healthy. We don't know Markel Fultz could turn into a superstar this year. Who knows? Like there's mm-hmm. a lot of 
there's a lot of intrigue surrounding the East right now. And I feel like the West, as much as we're talking about it, um, and it's going to be really top heavy and a lot of really good teams. And there's going to be a really good team that gets left out kind of like what happened last year where it was like three through nine were separated by only a couple games and it seems like they're destined for that same sort of scenario now and lebron's in the west so the west is just going to be a bloodbath but i do find it interesting in the projections that the wolves and the thunder are projected for about 52 53 wins this year and the thunder i'm more comfortable with that but like the wolves man i just feel like especially with the rumors already starting with jimmy butler um, just the amount of pressure that's going to be on this team to win now because Butler can leave and they just paid Wiggins. And I mean, that is, I don't even think that his extension is kicked in yet. And then you have Towns still negotiating with him. And I don't know, man, a lot of pressure on Tibbs this year and they have to win at least 50. And um, I don't know. What do you make of the Wolves and the Thunder? Because I do think they're the most interesting teams who could move into that top number two spot. I mean, I'm still there with the Jazz. They're my pick, but um what do you think about those two teams and what the yeah, numbers have I, said? Yeah, I was going to say, you you could probably throw Utah in that conversation too. But, you know, the Wolves are a team that our numbers in particular have been kind of high on for a couple of years now. And uh, they didn't really turn that potential into anything two years ago. But then last year, they kind of had this breakthrough. They made the playoffs after not having done that in a long time. Uh, and so, you know, it is a team with growth. It's a team on the rise. You mentioned a lot of their young players, uh, and then they have a, a true superstar in Jimmy Butler. And so you know, I think that's where things are coming in for uh, our projection. Now, it doesn't know about Thibodeau's tendencies to kind of burn out his teams and, and just generally wear out his welcome with, with a locker room after a certain number of years. Uh, right now, they're in year two of that. And so, you know, they're kind of at the point in which he has traditionally sort of peaked in, in his team's uh, ascent in the past. And so that's got to be an encouraging sign for them. But again, our model doesn't know that Uh, we've talked about maybe putting in a coaching adjustment at some point down the line. Uh, But right now it's just based on who's on the team. Uh, And so, you know, it's all about potential for them as far as Oklahoma city goes, you know, it was really, really important for them to bring back Paul George, obviously. Uh, and that really changed the complexion of the, the whole franchise, I think, at that point, because there was a lot of assumptions that George was just going to get up and go, whether it was to L.A. or somewhere else. Uh, and so the the notion of them bringing him back beyond just the basketball, uh, the on-court product and the way that he improved that team. Uh, and let me also say they might get a little addition by subtraction without Carmelo Anthony uh, yeah. in that lineup. And a healthy Patrick Patterson. Too. Right. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of things that can kind of improve that team from within. But I think it was also a statement just about that Oklahoma City can retain superstars when they have the chance to to leave and sort of convince them to come back that that somebody would be willing to play with Russell Westbrook because all we've heard about over the years is how you know other stars don't want to play with him they they don't like his his brand of game or feel like it meshes with them uh and so i think that was a lot of validation you know it sounds funny for a team that lost in the first round of the playoffs and you know I don't know how much more they can they can do with the core that they have uh, than, than maybe make the second round or maybe make a push for the conference final, but that's going to be tough uh, when you think about the Warriors and the Rockets. And so on the one hand, you could look at that team and be like, you know, can you really get excited about a team that, that their ceiling is a second round exit from the playoffs? But at the same time, I think it does sort of talk about 
the the program that Sam Presti has set up there in Oklahoma City that they're not just a team that lucked into this amazing group of players through the draft uh, uh, near on about 10 years ago uh, and sort of have been living off that ever since. They've actually been able to sort of retool on the fly. Uh, and I don't think we've seen that out of a lot of kind of small market teams or teams that are in destinations that traditionally haven't attracted a lot of free agent talent. Spurs or Blazers? Who ends up actually finishing under five hundred <laughs> in this model? Because oh man, that's insane! It was uh it was it, your model doesn't like Greg Popovich, and I I was a little hurt. I, I thought it was well, a little little mean, and it really hates Demar Derozan. Yeah, it it does, and I think that you know sort of speaks to also the aging curve and sort of the regression mm-hmm. of the mean factor that that I talked about with Toronto in that hypothetical universe in which they would have kept Derozan because he did have a career season last year, and I think it's sort of baking in a lot of the regression factors when it looks to his potential going forward. But yeah, again, it doesn't know that Popovich is the coach of the Spurs. And I think if we were to make an adjustment for that, you definitely would tack on, I don't know how many wins, uh, five, you know, something like that. I don't know if that's yeah. like a wild number to assign to, to a coach. I don't, I don't last think year so. without Kawhi. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the job, yeah. Yeah. If you think about the job that, that he did with that team last year and sort of a, the roster that they had to work with uh, once Kawhi was out, it really was masterful. And so on the, I, I think that's the reason why you have to choose the, the Spurs as being the team that, that uh, in that comparison with the Blazers, the team that wins more because, you know, the Blazers have, have kind of taken steps backward and they're kind of locked in this this zone of mediocrity where, you know, all of the, the contracts that they have and, and the way that they've sort of structured things on that roster doesn't give them a lot of opportunities to take a step forward. Yet at the same time, they're sort of, you know, stuck in the middle. Uh, it's, it's not a great place to be in, I don't think. Okay. Any other big surprises uh, from your prediction models that you're thinking about that you're going to monitor this season? Well, I mean, I think the Jazz... Uh, you know, they had a great year last year, but yeah. still, you know, it, uh, I don't think they really fully got as much of respect maybe until the playoffs uh, as as a true contender. And I don't know if they could beat the Warriors or the Rockets, but I do know that that's a team that I think is going to get a lot more respect this season as they go in. And the Lakers are going to be an entertaining experiment at the very least. I, I don't think they're going to, you know, LeBron is not going to make the NBA finals. I don't think for, no. <laughs> for the umpteenth straight season, but uh, I think it's going to be really interesting to see him, the type of team that they put around him because it is not a traditional LeBron team. And they've been kind of touting that, but I think a lot of the, the smart people on Twitter have been saying like, this is actually not a good thing. Like, uh, you know, for all the Cavs faults over the years and the way that they, uh, you know, failed to put talent around LeBron. Uh, we do still know what the formula is for a, a very successful LeBron team. Uh, and so by bucking that trend, it, it's going to be interesting to see uh, what the Lakers make out of that. Yeah, I, I have no idea, but I do know it's going to be a league pass favorite. I, I'm very <laughs> excited about it. Um, Stay up late for those games. Yeah, exactly. Because um, I don't, will not be staying up for uh, Shea Gilgis-Alexander and uh, Montrezl Harrell and the other Clippers that uh, are going to be playing heavy minutes for them this year. Uh, (laughs) As much as I love Montrezl Harrell, it's going to be a tough sell. 
late on a Tuesday. But um, so you also wrote about Le'Veon Bell, who is probably in his last year in Pittsburgh. It seems like after getting franchise tagged over and over again, this is it. He's not getting a long term deal from them. Um, he wants to get paid kind of like it, he's in a weird situation because he's basically a receiver, too. And he's just as dominant from the outside as he is from the inside. And um, you looked at like it's fascinating because like the Andrew Luck drop off we knew was coming when I was looking at this list. But you also had, like the David Johnson from um, 2016 and like what how different this team is just going from David Johnson to new David Johnson a year ago. And they were probably a playoff team last year if he was healthy for a full year. And it's like there is still value to certain running backs. And Le'Veon Bell is one of those guys, but he's not getting paid. So what did you find um, with running backs just struggling to get top quarterback money, even though there are a handful that still affect their team's uh, win-loss total um, to the extent that they do? Yeah, like you said, he's kind of doing the work of two positions in some ways. He's he's a threat as a runner, obviously, but also as a receiver. And so, you know, you can kind of commiserate with his situation where he's saying, I should be paid like, I think the term was an elite offensive weapon uh, that, that he kind of wants to be considered. And to me, that reads like I want quarterback money. And so the thing that I looked at was, okay, well, the proof is in the pudding for what happens when a team loses one of these sort of elite players at a given position, what ends up happening to those teams? And so I looked back to the, to the 1970 AFL-NFL merger, and what I found was that definitely quarterbacks sort of earn their keep in terms of the amount of influence that it exerts on a team when one of them goes down. They, uh, even like good quarterbacks, like a, like a Russell Wilson or someone like that, you know, bookies tend to move the line about five points when one of those guys is out. And history says that's about right. They'll move it seven points if, if somebody like, you know, Aaron Rodgers or, or Tom Brady would be out, uh, all else being equal. And so that sort of sets the bar for what Bell is trying to kind of go for. Uh, and when you look at running backs, over time, their influence has kind of gone down. Uh, on average, since 1970, it's about a four-point swing uh, when a top-tier running back like Le'Veon Bell misses time uh, for, for his team the following season. Uh, but when you look at it, you know, since 1978, that was when passing rules sort of became liberalized in the NFL, that number drops a little bit. It's more in like the three points per game range, and, and it goes down a little bit more as you go progressively into the sort of pass happy era. So on the one hand, yes, running backs are less valuable uh, to their team's offenses than quarterbacks. And I think, you know, you didn't have to do the study to kind of know that, but at the same time, I think running backs, especially those of, of the ilk of a David Johnson or of a Le'Veon Bell, maybe don't get quite enough credit because they do so many other things than just pound the ball between the tackles that they can actually make their teams better. And the counter argument on that is that when we've seen Le'Veon Bell miss time with Pittsburgh, uh, the Steelers have actually been fine. They were one of the only teams in the sample well, when he missed a lot of games in 2015. Their offense actually got better, but also, you know, you're talking about Ben Roethlisberger, uh, you're talking about Antonio Brown, you're talking about a lot of offensive talent that can kind of pick up the gaps, whereas uh, maybe a more normally constructed team that's relying heavily on somebody like David Johnson, look at Arizona, they, they just completely fell off a cliff last year offensively without him. And so, you know, you can see Bell's argument, and maybe it's not enough to justify getting quarterback money, but in a league where Odell Beckham is getting $19 million a year, you have to think that there's some place for somebody who's as multi-talented as Le'Veon Bell to get his money also. Garrison Hurst was the biggest drop-off on this list, and I almost fell out of my chair 
because um, I was seven well, years old when this year happened, yeah. but uh, I don't recall Garrison Hurst ever being in the conversation of best running back ever, or MVP Garrison Hurst. Did, well, that one did I miss something? Well, that yeah. one deserves a little bit of an asterisk, uh, and, and this is one of those things where any individual case on the list has its own sort of extenuating circumstances, and you're just sort of hoping that across the aggregate, you'll see the effect kind of isolated for the running back. Big thing with that 49ers team is they also lost Steve Young, you know, uh, future okay, Hall of Famer at that sense. point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's the combination of losing Garrison Hurst and Steve Young that caused you to be 13 points per game okay. worse on offense uh, in, in a subsequent year. So I think all of those things try to kind of balance out over time. And there's also been attempts to try to kind of disentangle the influence of uh, certain players who played with other players. Um, infamously, Randy Moss was one of the great sort of players whose quarterbacks always tended to have much better numbers with him than when they played without him. Uh, and there's some receivers that, that kind of had that effect. So it would be great to look at running backs also in that regard and sort of say like, okay, who improves the performance of the skill position players around them that sort of make their teammates look a lot better than they are? Because that's also an argument that Bell is trying to make is like, Hey, you know, you're talking about all these guys, Antonio Brown is on the cover of Madden maybe I deserve a little bit of credit too. I'm opening up space. I'm, I'm, you know, kind of helping them be able to spread things out and, and uh, making life easier for these guys. Yeah. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting either way, but uh, if you had to pick, who do you think Le'Veon Bell signs with this off season? Who do you think oh, he gets quarterback? Well, a combination question. <laughs> do you think he gets what he close to what he's looking for quarterback money? And then uh, two, where do you think the most uh, logical fit is for him? You know, I I don't think he gets quarterback money at the end of the day. If we're talking about, you know, just today, uh, and I don't know when when the show is going to air, but Aaron Rodgers uh, (laughs) is going to air tonight. There you go. Uh, Aaron Rodgers signed today for, I think it was $33 million a year uh, and and some gargantuan amount guaranteed. Uh, And so, you know, that is the going rate for the top quarterbacks. I think we've seen the all time record for highest paid NFL player be broken four times this off season. I think it was, um, uh, let's see if we can go through <laughs> who was Garoppolo was one of them for sure. Matt Ryan. Oh yeah. And Kirk, uh, Kirk Cousins. So, you know, now we have a new player at the top of the list for that. So if that's the standard that we're applying to Le'Veon Bell. They're not going to give a running back that many years or that much average annual value. That's just not going to happen. Uh, but at the same time, I, I would like to think he could maybe break into the, into the twenties, but uh, it, it's, it's kind of tough because you're talking about a running back who is at an age where players tend to decline uh, at, from this point on, he's 26. So that sounds really young, but all the studies that have been done on the, 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 the just sheer pounding that running backs take and, and the durability issues that they tend to have as their careers go on, you see a lot of guys just fall off a cliff after 26, 27, 28, uh, and very few make it productively to even the age of 30. And I think that's the biggest limiting factor is that quarterbacks, you can see now Drew Brees, Tom Brady playing well into their 40s. That's absolutely unheard of for a running back mm-hmm. and it's, it's actually kind of unheard of for a running back to even make it like 10 years shy of that it, it, it's very depressing and the other thing that's depressing is you know there along with Le'Veon Bell and and David Johnson and you know Alvin Kamara also there's a lot of these receiving running backs that have kind of crept up in in recent years and you might think oh well 
you know, not all touches are created equal. Carries are one thing because they imply that you've been tackled probably in a pile, you know, you're getting pounded. Whereas maybe if you're receiving, you tiptoe out of bounds, maybe, you know, you're subjecting yourself to fewer hits than, right. than if you were just running the ball. But there was a study by Jason Lisk of the big lead back when he was at the Pro Football Reference blog, even in the, the sports reference blogs at the yeah. top of the show. Uh, he did a study where he found that there really wasn't a distinction that this idea mm. that, oh, well, uh, receptions are better on your body and, and put less wear and tear on it is actually kind of a, a, a fallacy that it's really just about the, the age and the way that it affects your quickness and, and just your, you know, the natural effect on your body and workload is workload touches or touches, you know, you're getting hit most of the time anyway. Uh, so I think that that's kind of telling and it's also pretty depressing for somebody like Le'Veon Bell, because I think based on what he's done, he does deserve uh, a lot more money than he's being paid. And he's, we should say he's being paid the most money or, or maybe second to Todd Gurley that any running back ever got in a season, which sounds incredibly impressive. But then you look at it and it's like less than half as much as these quarterbacks are making per season. And it sort of puts things in perspective a little bit. Yeah. Well, he's going to enjoy Oakland next year um, when they back at the Brinks truck for him. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's uh, I, I forgot to, to give my pick. Uh, so you think it's going to be the Raiders? Yeah, I think I he's old enough. I think it's the perfect situation. Marshawn retires and step right <laughs> up. Next old guy, him and Doug get a Martin. New, get a new burnt out uh, running back when it happens. I, I can exactly. see that happen. Um, you know, I think, I don't know. Yeah, I, th- I think it might be, wouldn't it be fun if it were somebody like the Browns? And they no, just kind of no. they're making the... progress. Uh, I want Baker. <laughs> I don't want them to do more dumb things. The Browns don't need to do that. No. Cleveland deserves, they don't deserve that. I want Baker to yeah. be good. I, I yeah. really do. So no, no yeah. Browns. I'm, no I'm more high, bad I'm Browns I'm Baker Mayfield, for sure. Dark Horse though? Yeah, uh, Dark Washington. Horse? Washington. Well, I mean, that does seem in keeping with a lot of the things that they've done over the years too. Like Dan Snyder is the king of- with like a bad quarterback situation where it's like you can afford to, like you can't invest in Le'Veon Bell long-term and also a quarterback a bunch of money. So it's like, it's gotta be a team where it's like Washington where they're like, well, we have Alex Smith who can't just like single-handedly carry us to a Super Bowl, But like if we pair him with the right guy, it's like the Andy Dalton scenario where it's like, if we surround them with enough talent, um, we can be a Super Bowl contender. But if we don't, it's just going to be ugly for several weeks at a time. So um, I can see that being it. I, what I really wanted to do is go to New England because I just think Belichick with him, like, oh my God, what they could do in uh, New oh, England yeah. would be insane. But I yeah, it would, it would be like James White on steroids. It would yeah. be pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, last thing and then we'll go. Uh, I'm an Atlanta guy and I need to know, you have a history with the Hawks. When you saw that they were trading Luka Doncic to Dallas and trading back for that lottery protected pick, basically, it's going to be a terrible pick next year because Dallas is probably going to be a lot better than people realize because they have a lot of vets mixed in with Doncic. But um, when they did that and they drafted Trey Young, what were your first thoughts, and how do you think Trey Young is actually going to do as an NBA player? Yeah, my first thoughts were no. <laughs> I, I <laughs> okay. was I was not uh, I was not in favor of that, and uh, yeah, like like you said, I I'd been with the Hawks a few years ago. And really a lot of the, most of the front office and most of the uh, 
all the coaching staff, I think by now, uh, are no longer there. All the roster, I think, uh, aside from maybe one or two guys are no longer there too. So that was really sort of like the end of the era completely for me was, uh, seeing them do that and just being like, man, come on. Uh, yeah. So Trey young, you know, people keep making these Curry comparisons. They loved that last year. And, and I think that's really what's going on in the mind of the Hawks front office right now is there, you know, there's the history with golden state, uh, and the background there. And so, you know, I think they're trying to catch lightning in a bottle again and, and replicate that. But really, there's only one Steph Curry. And Luka Doncic seems like the type of player who's really more geared to thrive in the NBA, uh, you know, on average, uh, if, if you had to pick one that would have a better career. So, yeah, it was, it was disappointing to see that. I mean, I wish him the best. You know, I, I am fond of uh, the Hawks. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's kind of depressing to see that. But thankfully, new arena name, State Farm Arena. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Things the are farm. looking up. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, the, as long as you can do that, you know, uh, it's like the fill, that really didn't work for me. So maybe they, no. they'll, uh, they'll go with something else. But the, they'll still have the sort of Atlanta pasted across the front of the, the mm-hmm. facade on, the, on yeah. the arena. How do you feel about that? I, I've never known how to feel about that. It looks better far away. It does look a lot better far away. If you're standing right <laughs> next to it, you're like, what the hell am I even exactly. looking at? Exactly. Yeah. That's 100% what it is. Yeah. So but the I problem is it's on yeah. like a weird stretch of high, you know, a uh, sort of semi-deserted street where, you know, you can't really get, uh, unless maybe you're in like one of the CNN buildings around it, yeah. uh, you, you can't necessarily get that long-term vantage point all that easily. Uh, if no. you're just like a pedestrian. You mean the Gulch, kind of, like kind of pushed back from that area. Like if you're going to Atlanta United game or something like that, you can get yeah. it. It's, it's, it's tough. Um, it's not as insane as the, the Falcon statue and stuff like that, um, but <laughs> uh, it's just in a weird spot. And I, it's, uh, I have a lot of thoughts on now State Farm Arena, but... Uh, yeah, it's sure. Well, <laughs> that's my, where I'm at know, with the my, Hawks. Is sure. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's where everyone is. I was going to say that was the home of my uh, late lamented uh, hockey team, the Atlanta Thrashers. Yeah. Uh, who who I um, you know rooted for until the bitter end, and then uh, it's it's always been so bittersweet to see uh, Winnipeg, you know, do well and really got to the cusp of the Stanley Cup final last year. Uh, and it was just like, man, that could have been the Thrashers had maybe more than like a couple hundred people shown up for the Save the Thrashers uh, <laughs> march or, you know, to any of the games. So, believe you know, in Blue Land. Blue Land, come believe. on. Yeah. No, not, um, not, as, not as many people believed as, as, as should have. Um, yeah. Not that they gave a lot of reason to uh, over the years. But, wow. yeah, it's so depressing. And it's depressing you know, to think about Atlanta as uh, it's got to be the only city to lose two, uh, ho- certainly to lose two hockey teams uh, in the same city uh, in their history. And got, uh, one of the only ones to lose two pro teams in the same sport, uh, I would think also. And so, you know, I don't know if hockey is ever going to come back. We found your next uh, article on 538. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's going to be a, an ode to the Atlanta Thrashers is going to mm-hmm. really burn up the clicks. Yeah, well, you get you could follow the Carolina Hurricanes because they've acquired everyone from that disastrous front office now. So um, <laughs> if you ever want to see what the Thrashers would be like now, um, yeah, that's that's what you could do. But uh, I think a lot of people picked up the Canes 
just because of regional proximity when um, when the Thrashers went under, too. Because they're probably going to move, too. Their attendance and everything is terrible. Why would you pick up with the Carolina Hurricanes? I don't even You know. just got to, like, creep sort of further north every single No, join the Ducks, man. <laughs> it's Anaheim, man. Anaheim Ducks. That's where you go. I, I got to say, those new third jerseys that they have are, uh, are pretty hot. Join me in the Anaheim Duck fan club. <laughs> was that the team that you jumped to after the Thrashers? Yeah. Or? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just like, it felt natural. Big Mighty Ducks fan growing up. And uh, it was just, now I don't have to like think about them in, in Atlanta capacity and everything else. Yeah, it just works. <laughs> Paul Correa yeah, well, you know, Yeah, Paul Correa, Tammy Solani. Uh, yeah. you know, all they have to do is hire Gordon Bombay as coach and we'll be set. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> That's exactly right. Neil, I uh, did not expect this to go down to Mighty Ducks. Uh, Andrew, <laughs> yeah, that's a good that's, turn. Yeah, no, this is this was great. And I appreciate you taking the time. We'll have to do this again soon, sir. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right. Well, read all of Neil's great pieces on 538.com. Go listen to The Lab or uh, Hot Takedown. If that comes back, Something. all kinds of great posts. Something Someday. Yeah. In your, in your podcast feed. Yeah, there you go. Um, or you can just uh, look back to this podcast because you never know when Neil's going to pop up here too. So there you go, Neil. Thank you so much. And we will talk again soon, sir. Thanks, Chase. All right. Welcome back to the Chase Most Podcast. On the line right now, 680s, Ben Ingram, the best radio voice in baseball. Ben, good evening. How are you? I'm doing well, Chase. Thanks for having me, man. I'm not going to lie. I remember the first time I saw a picture of you after listening to you on the radio and just, <laughs> it's an all-time differential between the voice and the person. I'm sure you get that like literally every day. And all the time. And it goes back a long way too. I was, I could take you back to the first time I was calling baseball. This was an independent baseball 14 years ago. And I gave my tape to the guys who were going to hire me. They thought I was in my 60s. Yes, <laughs> um, and, and because because the guy who put us in touch was a former college professor of mine. They said, "Did you teach with this guy?" Like, no, 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 he was a student of mine. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> so yeah, it's um, I guess I got part of it genetically, and then enhanced the rest of it with uh, brown liquor and cigar smoke. How about that? There you go. Well, I don't think you could have done anything else. I think you're required. Once this voice was bestowed upon you, <laughs> they were like, "Oh, you're going to be an announcer." That's how this works. You know, I guess it is kind of funny you say that because I wanted to be announcer, an announcer before I had a voice. It just kind of by chance happened that it worked out. I, I when I was gosh eight, nine, ten years old, that's I knew what I wanted to be. So the desire came first, and the voice came later. And I'm glad they came together because I, I definitely didn't want to be uh, doing something else for a living. Uh, I promise you, whatever else I'd have been capable of would not have been near as fun as this. So it, it all worked out for the best. Did you always want to do baseball, or was there another sport that you uh, envisioned yourself calling games for before? I think I always knew that baseball was going to be the way to go, and I enjoy football a lot. I enjoy basketball a lot. I'm a big NBA fan. I'm a big college football fan. So if if you were to ask me what's your favorite sport, you might need to consider what time of the year it is. If you ask me in Mm -hmm. 
October, I might say, man, I'm really into football right now. If you were to ask me in July, I'm going to say it's definitely baseball. So, uh, But when it comes to calling a game, all three sports are different to call, completely different. They all present their own challenges. But baseball is every single day, and it, it provides uh, a, a career where you can do this every single day, and you really don't have to do a whole lot during the off season, which is great. So that, that has been uh, the, the best part, I think, about baseball. But I knew from an early age, I, I knew I wanted to call baseball. I always felt like the best broadcasters called baseball because I feel like it's a more challenging sport to broadcast than the other two. Mm -hmm. The other two present their own challenges, but I think filling time and being a, a raconteur of sorts and, and entertaining people and telling stories, I think that's, that's a hard thing to learn to do. And, yeah. and some guys have it and some guys don't. And that was always something that was interesting to me. I, I'm, my father's a pastor. I've got folks in my family who are great storytellers. So from an early age, I just uh, public speaking and, and conversing with folks and being entertaining is something that I learned from an early age. And uh, I think you tie that in with my love for baseball. My dad played college baseball, so I grew up. Uh, baseball is going to be our number one sport. So I think you tie all those things in together, and that's probably what attracted me more to baseball than anything else. I, I've always thought hockey was the hardest to announce. I don't know if you watch much hockey, but like those games, if you watch NHL and NBC – it's amazing how fast they have to go. And you don't know when people are getting subbed in and out because it's just, mm -hmm. it's all free flowing and just the names in general. Like, yeah, it's, because uh, <laughs> it's all those guys have six syllable last names with like one vowel in there. So exactly. <laughs> you're right. And, and look, I didn't grow up around hockey at all. You might be spot on with that. I grew up in Mississippi and, We'd see ice about once every five years. I was going to say, not so. a lot of hockey coverage in Mississippi. <laughs> not at all. So, but yeah, those, those guys have my tremendous, tremendous amount of uh, respect for me from from the guys who call hockey. It's got to be a demanding sport. So, who have you enjoyed talking with the most this year on the Braves? I, you know, I had an interview yesterday. Now that you say that, with Kevin Gosman, who mm -hmm. seemed about as entertaining as anyone I, I've spoken with all year. Now, you really, you, yeah, and, and which is surprising for a starting pitcher. Those starting pitchers are so routine oriented and can sometimes be downright boring. To be honest with mm -hmm. you. Uh, because it's all about their routine, and I've got to get my work in, and I'm trying to get into the seventh inning. I'm trying to go deep into a ball game. You get a bunch of cliches. Uh, these teams do a really nice job of, of teaching these guys what to say, what not to say, and they ended up uh, – a lot of times you just end up getting a bunch of cliches from guys. But the more you know players, the the, the, the less you hear cliches and uh, routine answers and things like that. So Gosman's an interesting one. He told me yesterday about – how on days he starts, he doesn't wear deodorant because he wants to be <laughs> nasty and wants to have an attitude on the mound. So, look, uh -huh. whatever, what he's doing lately is working. Uh, I enjoy talking to Dansby Swanson. I think he's a, a very intelligent young man. Uh, it does a nice job of breaking down the game. You can talk to him about all sorts of different things. Uh, outside of that, I think Brandon McCarthy is really interesting to talk to mm -hmm. because he's been he around. He's like a future broadcaster or he, analyst he, or something he, like that. He yeah. does, and he's not short on opinions. Whether you like his opinion or not, and if you follow him on Twitter, he is as opinionated as they come. Heck, he mm -hmm. might have uh, a future in politics ahead of him if he really wanted to right. get into it because I feel like he tweets more about that than, than anything. But he's got an opinion, and he's been around. He's got experience, and I enjoy picking his brain here and there about different parts of his career because he's had an interesting career with all sorts of twists and turns. So it's, it's fun because you got 25 guys in a clubhouse and every single day you have a broadcast for the most part. And there's always another story to find out. There's always something else to discover about a player. And it's our job to do that. And, and when you get a nugget, you love having that nugget because you can't wait to tell about it 
on the, on the air that night and discuss mm-hmm. it with your audience. So that's a great thing about this game, and I think those guys have done a really nice job of of being open and, and, and giving you a whole lot when it comes to how they see the game. Catchers are always interesting to talk to, and we got a couple of good ones in Flo and Zook, and they've, uh, they see the whole game in front of them. So those are some of my favorites, and I, and I like the guys who are going to give you a sound bite, and, and Gosman and, and McCarthy definitely do a really good job of that. What do you think is going on with Albies right now? Well, I think the first thing is the 22 games in 20 days. And if you'll notice, go back and look through if you want to, or you can just take my word for it. Go back and look at what he's done on days after off days. This guy plays at one speed, and he plays with basically top gear all the time. I feel like Ozzy Albies is as exciting and as energetic of a player as I've seen in a very, very long time. And I think when you play 22 games in 20 days or you've not had an off day in three weeks or something like that, it's going to catch up to you. I feel like he was running on E for a little while, and he had the off day on Monday, and he came back last night, was on base four times, and had three base hits, Mm -hmm. and looked like the old him. So it's not easy to play at that top gear all the time, but he, good luck convincing him to play at any other gear other than that. He, he may uh, start to do that once he gets older in his career, but this guy plays with his hair on fire. He's a ball of pure energy, and I enjoy seeing that at the ballpark every single day. So the rigors of a long season, it's tough, and we haven't done it too many times in your career. You see guys late in seasons go through lulls. We have not seen that out of Acuna this year, simply because he had the injury, and we've we've only seen him out there for seventy some odd games. But it wouldn't shock me if he has a similar lull this time a year from now. Once you get into one hundred forty, one hundred thirty-five games played, something like that. So that's the number one thing. I also think that he's learning more as a hitter, uh, being more and more patient. We've seen him take a few more walks here in the month of August. This is a guy who went, gosh darn near a month without a walk uh, he just yeah. is so aggressive and he, just the ability to spit on a few more pitches here and there I think would do him pretty well uh, and, and he's learning that that's the thing he's 21 years old and I don't even want to admit what I was doing when I was 21 years old I can't even imagine <laughs> learning what to do in the big leagues but yeah. he's learning a lot and he's getting a lot better and I think his youth is uh, it's sometimes it serves him well other times it shows the inexperience but that's all coming together and I think he's a very heady ball player. That's going to match the talent that he naturally has, and I think he's going to be just fine. Do you think Freddie Freeman's already thinking NL MVP? Is that on his mind at all? He would say that he's not thinking about it in the least. I would not believe him, Chase, to be honest yeah. with you. I mean, when you have the season he's having, everybody, whether you like the limelight or not, everybody likes to be rewarded for what you've done individually. I've never seen anybody who said, don't talk to me at all. And never mind that I hit 330 and. Uh, drove in 110 runs with 40 bombs. I don't want any kind of recognition. Nobody says that. Uh, whether that they're shy, it, that's actually true. That's a that's a good <laughs> example with the and, and social anxiety that he has. Yeah. Uh, but Love people Zach. like being told that hey, you're doing a nice job. And I think Freddie feels if he's out. He's told me this before. I, I've asked him before, especially during spring training. I'll say, is there a certain number you want to hit? Is there a home run total or a run total or a or batting average? He said, no. So the only stat that matters to me is games played. He said, if I feel like I, if I played 162 games, the numbers will be there. And at this point, he's played in all 132 games that the Braves have played this season, mm-hmm. and, and sure enough, the numbers are pretty much there. If he can get this team into the postseason, I think he is a very strong candidate for MVP. Uh, I don't think you'll see him 
petition for such an award or, or be, play the political side of things like that. But I do feel like if, if he gets to the end of the season, he's got these kind of numbers, and this team wins the division, I think in the back of his mind he'd tell you, man, I'd be disappointed if I wasn't uh, the winner of this award, at least strongly considered for the award. Especially considering it's probably going to be a Met if it doesn't go to him. Say that one more time. It, I mean, especially if it goes to a New York Met, if, if it doesn't go to him, because it seems like Jacob deGrom, the narrative is shifting right. um, just because like, it's really hard for a pitcher to win anyway, just because they are only playing every five days. And it's just mm-hmm. it's difficult. And you have to be having an insane season to really be considered. And he is. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I mean, my opinion on this is uh, Braves fans, and especially Freeman, would probably not like this, but I don't think we should have an what, like an, a separate league MVP considering everybody plays each other anyway. Right. Um, and the idea that Freddie Freeman is ahead of Mookie Betts, Mike Trout, Aaron Judge, even though Aaron Judge has missed a lot of games now and a lot of those guys have gotten injured, but like Jose Ramirez, like if you just the disparity between the AL and the NL, I, I can't get over that. And I just feel like we should just award whoever finishes second in the AL MVP voting as the NL MVP. That's yeah, well, the at, strong but... the strong argument for that would be exactly what you mentioned with interleague play. Everybody's playing everybody, so who's the best player and who's the best pitcher yeah. and who's the best rookie? We don't need to separate by leagues anymore. I don't understand why they're still doing that. Yeah, they've sp- spread it around a little bit, and yeah, I guess it's something that they've always done. So you're going to have a hard time pulling it back. At uh, I feel you know what's interesting is to to back <clears throat> Freddie Freeman's point. Look at the uh, who I would say are the top three candidates for National League Cy Young. They're all in this division. Scherzer in Washington, mm-hmm. Nolan in Philadelphia, and DeGrom in New York. And right. if I'm Freddie Freeman, I'm saying, man, the, the, the top three pitchers in the Cy Young are in my division. I'm seeing these teams yeah. 19 times a year, and I'm facing these point. pitchers three, four times a season. So uh, to me, that, that adds another element. Um, it, it's going to be a tight race because I think Nolan Arnato is having a really good season, and he's actually in the hunt for a potential triple crown. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt Carpenter was as hot as anybody, but but he's had his injury issues and things like that this season. Uh, Javier Baez is at big numbers. And I think what it comes down to, it, Chase, is, okay, these numbers are great. This guy's numbers are, are really impressive, and that guy's numbers jump off the page. But what have they done for their team? And, and if this team wins the division, I think that opens up the door for all sorts of awards for the Braves. I think it guarantees Acuna the National League Rookie of the Year. I think it has Freddie Freeman in the top two or three for the MVP, potentially wins it. I think it definitely guarantees Brian Snitker the Manager of the Year award. So you win your division with some of the numbers Ooh, these guys have okay. put up, and you're all of a sudden you open up the door to all sorts of, of awards that could come for individuals in your organization. Snicker for I didn't even really consider that. I feel it seems like it's going to be Mike Schilt to me, if the, especially if the Cardinals make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Like he's getting that. I feel like the narrative. Like you got to think about like oh, what's the best story here? Right. And like the Cardinals turning everything around after firing Matheny. Like it's just. I don't see him not winning. And then it's like Alex Cora is having this insane year with Boston. So it's like, how do you not give it to someone like that? But then you have the A's with Bob Melvin. He's mm-hmm. probably the best story because they're exceeding expectations and they're just like, they're pushing the Astros just like nobody expected. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think the managerial uh, MVP race is interesting to me. It is. And I, I feel like it usually goes to, the team that went above and beyond what anybody expected for them. Right. Uh, in other words, if for for 
Alex Cora to win the MV or win the manager of the year, for Joe Madden to win the manager of the year, um, for Dave Roberts to win the manager of the year. The, everybody expected good things out of those teams. So them leading their divisions, them getting into the postseason, I mean, it's hard to sit there and say, all right, well, what a great job he did because we expected them to. It, it's, it's, uh, it's guys like Snitker, and it, it's guys like Craig Council, and it's guys like Bob Melvin who take a team that you didn't think could do what they're doing and overachieve with that team. Yeah. I think that's how a lot of people around Major League Baseball look at it. And, and look, Cora may have done a better job than anybody. Look, his team's 50 games over 500. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you could say the same thing for Francona and Cleveland and what those guys yeah. have been able to do, et cetera. But people expected those teams to be there, and I think it's the managers who do the most um, – uh, maybe the thing that was against the the biggest odds, the accomplishment against the biggest odds, that seemed yeah. to get that award. So right or wrong, that, that's what we typically see in Major League Baseball. Just for argument's sake, let's say the Braves get a wild card spot instead of winning the division. Who do you mm-hmm. think they would have picked to be their uh, starter in a wild card game right now? Right now, I think it'd be Kevin Gosman, and, and I think okay. it's because he's wow. going deeper in games, and, and, yeah. which is a really weird thing to say because had you asked me that. A month ago, obviously, I wouldn't have said him because he wasn't you part of the team. Fulty. But you could exactly. I think if you'd asked me in May, June, July, and August, I could have given you four different answers because we've seen different pitchers hot at different times of the year. Sean Newcomb at one point was the hottest pitcher that the Braves had, and I felt like, yeah. man, I, I'm more confident for him than anybody. Uh, you went through a stretch where Fulty's been the guy, and Fulty's been good this year. I think he deserves a lot of credit for what he's done in in this month of August and, and what he could potentially do in September because if you look at what he did last year, uh, up until August 1, he was pretty good. His first 20 starts of the year last year were good starts. His last 10, he, he ran the train right off a cliff. It wasn't just a, a slight deviation from what he had done. It was a comp- it was It was 180 degrees the other direction. Uh, so he ran out of gas at the end of last season. We've not seen him do that this year. He's had a sub-2 ERA in the month of August and has been really good, a big part of why the Braves are in first place. So I think he'd be my close number two. There would have been a time where I'd said, well, what about Anibal Sanchez? He's not anything flashy, yeah. but he's he's going deep in games. He's giving you an opportunity to win, and every single night he's six innings, six and a third, six and mm-hmm. two-thirds, giving up just two or three runs gives you an opportunity to win. So I like the guys who are going to be able to go deep in a ball game. Uh, I like the guys who have been there before. Kevin Gosman checks both of those boxes. He's been there in the postseason with the Orioles a few times, and he's been going deep in games. So uh, whomever the hot hand is for the month of September, that's probably the guy that's going to be the odds-on favorite. What do you think the ceiling is for this Braves team this year? In this year, I think the ceiling is probably the World Series, and I don't know about winning the World Series. And, and before you, okay, you think, so do you think there is a World Series potential here still? And, and here's why I say that. This okay. National League is as open as I've seen it in a yeah. long time. This isn't like last year where the Dodgers were hands down the odds-on favorite to, to win the pennant. Year before they that, you the playoffs. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Last year, uh, 2016, you said, okay, I don't know what's going to happen, but the Cubs are probably the odds-on favorite going into this thing. I don't see one team in the National League that I can definitively say is the team to beat in the National League. I don't see one team where you say, that's the team you got to go through. And it wouldn't be surprising to me 
if it were the Cardinals, as it, as much as it were the Rockies, as much as it were the Diamondbacks, as much as it were the Cubs or the Braves who win the pennant. I feel like it's that wide open. Now, once you get to the World Series, I think you're going to run into some trouble because I think the uh, Yankees, Red Sox, Indians, and Astros are all significantly better than any National League team. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's so wide open that if you can just get into this thing, just get into the mix, especially as a division winner, who knows? I think the odds are pretty similar across the board. If you're asking me to back one team and throw $1,000 behind one of these National League teams, I don't know which way I'd go. Uh, whereas if I'm in the Dodgers. Even, and that's probably the safe bet. Yeah. But the way that they've struggled here lately, yeah. I'm not. they still have two teams in front of them in their own division. Now, they're only a right. game back, and they've won four in a row. But the Rockies and the Diamondbacks have been tough, and it's just, man, somebody's going to be left out in that division over there and probably yeah. have a pretty good record. So it, it, it's hard. It's hard for me to, to throw money down behind one team and say, man, I'm really confident in my bet for this team. Do you think the Braves expected this at this point, or do you think even Alex Anthopoulos would tell you that they did not expect to be like four games no. up on the Phillies? I, and, absolutely uh, yeah. not. I, I don't. I don't know how you could have expected this. Mm-hmm. I think what we're seeing in 2018, Chase, is what I expected in 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said before the season, when when I was doing shows with our affiliates, and people are asking about predictions, which is so ridiculous for baseball because you, like, it's 162 <laughs> games, you never know who's going to get hurt or whatever it may yeah. be. But that's what we do anyway. That's definitely what we do. <laughs> and, and I was thinking, I think Vegas had this team at 73 and a half wins. Mm-hmm. And I said, I will take the over by uh, a game or two. I was thinking 74, 75 wins for this team. Uh, that's another step in the right direction. I was thinking high end, maybe a 500 team. And, and if anybody were to tell you otherwise, don't believe him. Because, I, look, I was at spring training every single day for six weeks and talking with Alex and Perry and the guys in the front office and uh, other folks who, who cover the Braves in the media with Kevin and D.O.B. And, and Bowman. There wasn't one person, not one person, whom I heard more than 81 wins as a projection from. So to be sitting on 74 with 30 games left to be played after tonight, no one expected that at all. This team goes 16 and 15 the rest of the way. That's a 90-win team. So for the final 31 games, you just got to go one game over 500. You, you win 90. Uh, I never expected that to be a possibility. And what they're doing right now, I, I thought it would be a possibility for 2019. So that's really good news, especially for a fan base that I feel deserves it because we've not seen winning baseball in five years now. So anything that comes ahead of schedule is fantastic. Last thing, and then we'll go. Um, out of all the young pitchers, because it feels like they're all getting closer and closer to getting called up and they're going to have a lot of decisions to make. The lineup is basically all set. Like they've, bas- I mean, Nick Markakis is probably gone after this year. You know, have to fill that spot. But most of uh, the core guys are all there, and um, they just locked in Flowers, and they'll probably still chase a catcher like Real Muto, but he'll be too expensive. And guys like that, Freeman's locked in. But um, I do wonder who, in your opinion, is it Allard? Is it Wright? Is it Soroka? Who is the young pitcher in this in this group that you're the most excited about, and you think Braves fans should look out as the most like maybe the highest upside, most ace potential of all of them. Yeah, well, the guys that I've seen to this point, uh, to me, that's an easy answer. I think it's Tukey Toussaint. I've been very impressed with him. So I'm at spring training, and I never never get an opportunity to see these guys in in the minor leagues. So I see them at spring training, and then when they come up here, it's a great time to throw eyes on them. He is, to me, he seems like the most developed of those guys. I've not watched Kyle Wright pitch since March. 
And when I saw him in spring training, I thought he looked really, really good. I liked his stuff a lot. You could tell that there were just a few things that, that he'd need to polish up, and maybe over the course of one season of the minor leagues this year, he could be the polished pitcher that he needs to be in order to be here. I do think we'll see him in September. Pretty sure we're going to be seeing him come out of the bullpen uh, with the Braves in September. But Toussaint, to me, seems like it's not just the stuff. It's the mental makeup as well. I loved his answers in his postgame media scrum. I, I love how he handled the media, and I loved how he talked about what he was doing. It's a day and age now where you, you teach these pitchers. We, we see these pitchers come up, and they see, say, okay, why did you throw this 2-2 pitch? I don't know, because that's the pitch that was called. Uh, and we're, we're teaching guys what to throw and maybe not why to throw certain pitches, when to throw certain pitches. Uh, and I think we've taken a lot of the – um, a lot of the thinking game out of pitching because of, of pitch counts and because we're not allowing guys to go beyond five innings and uh, things like that. So when a pitcher can come up and articulate, here's why I was doing X, Y, and Z, uh, that jumps off the page to me because we don't see it quite as much anymore. Tuki Toussaint was uh, speaking to us as if he had been in the big leagues for five years uh, after his start the other day. Uh, I'm, very, I'm very impressed with him. I think Kyle Wright's going to have really good stuff, and I look forward to seeing him. Colby Allard is the interesting one to me. And, and if you were to ask me, if, is there a guy in the minor league system that you would be willing to part ways with, what, uh, what, ta- what highly touted prospect would you be willing to move in a trade if it meant getting something in another position? He's the guy that I'm pointing at because I feel like he's got high upside. I think there's a lot of value there. He's extremely young. He's left-handed. I just – don't I, maybe I'm just maybe I'm being hard on him. I'm not quite as high on him as I am some of these other uh, pitchers who I've seen with the Braves. He's got a decent fastball in the low 90s, good breaking ball, good changeup as well. Uh, but I, I've seen more. I feel out of Wright, out of Toussaint, out of Gohara when he's healthy. Certainly out of Mike Soroka, and I'm very impressed with those guys. So I hope that Soroka can come to uh, spring training next year with a healthy shoulder, and we can see what he looks like and resume what he started this year. Tuki Dusad, I'm sure we'll have all the confidence in the world after being in the big leagues at the end of this season. I think he'll be ready to compete for a spot. And we'll see where Kyle Wright is after we see him in the rotation. But those are my top two or three, and that, that's probably how I'd rank him going to 2019. All right. Well, there you go. It's a lot to be excited about. Optimism is, is high in Braves country. So, Ben, I really appreciate you taking the time. We can find you on Twitter at Ingram Radio. We can listen to you on the Atlanta Braves Radio Network on 6A The Fan, and uh, hopefully no more rain delays. <laughs> hopefully we're clear of those, Chase. I appreciate it, man. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Ben. You got it. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I uh, just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate if you could take a second and leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple Podcast listener, Remember, you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, be sure to check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com, where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Uh, thank you for your support, and we'll be back another episode very soon. Thanks, guys. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. 
legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history, relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.